case you are new or visiting, um, as many have mentioned, my name is Luke, one of the pastors here at Carson Valley Bible, and it is a joy and honor of mine, really it is, to be able to stand in this pulpit week in and week out um, and, and help us learn the Word of God. And that's what we're going to do now. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn back to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18 is where we're going to be at this morning. If you're using one of those Black Pew Bibles, that's going to be on page 981, chapter 2, starting in verse 12. <clears throat> now, as you find your way there, uh, last week we took a short pause in the book of Philippians. And we took a short pause in the book of Philippians because I felt that it was necessary and good for us to just take a moment, take a week, and to, to focus in on one of the attributes of the God in whom we worship, and that is his omnipotence or his power, that God is all-powerful, that there is nothing in this life that is too difficult for God to do. Now, as we jump back, though, into the book of Philippians, church, I want to remind you, remind you that we are going to see the work and the power of God all over the place, all over the place. And even as we continue to look at this book and we continue just to walk through it line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I hope you will see that the power of God is at play. In particular, what we're going to see is the power of God is at play in the way that we actually live out our salvation. That the way that Christians actually act like Christians is just a matter of the power of God at work. Because when it comes down to it, how in the world does anybody actually obey Christ? Right? How do people like you or I actually obey, actually follow the most perfect, holy, righteous one? Like, how do we actually do that? Right? Under what power do we do that? Is it our own? That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. Or if you are more fancy to the, the theological grid, which I know many of you are, we're going to be looking at sanctification. Right? How does somebody grow in their faith? How does someone get sanctified as a Christian? Now, if you are just visiting, or maybe you're not quite sure where you're at with Jesus, one, you are welcome here. You're welcome here. We're not going to try to do anything weird to you. I know just standing and singing with strangers is a weird, weird concept, but that's about as weird as it's going to get, okay? We're not, you're not going to have to stand up and, and tell us your deepest, darkest secrets, okay? I'll do that here, um, because I got the microphone, so you don't have to worry about it. But if you are just visiting, this is actually a really good week for you to be here, because you're going to see why do Christians do the things they do, right? Or if you are a Christian, right, which I know many of you are, you can actually start to think through, okay, how do I follow Christ? How do I actually grow in my faith? How do I mature in my faith? Or to use the language in which the Apostle Paul will use in our text this morning, how do you work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Because the Apostle Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Philippi, he's addressing Christians. He's addressing Christians. And he's going to be telling them not just about why they believe in what they believe or why do they believe in Jesus, but what are the consequences of that? What actually flows out of that? But we're going to go ahead and stop there as I normally do before I actually read the text of Scripture and, and pray one more time. And I'm going to pray for a couple of different things, but one of the, the main grid in which I always pray for, and that's the reason why we're stopping, is because we actually need God's help in understanding His Word. 
that we want just through the power of the Holy Spirit. To actually be able to understand God's word. To understand what it means about him, what it means about us. And so that it could just penetrate our hearts and, by God's grace, lead us to repentance if necessary. We'll return and trust in Christ and find our joy in him. But let's go ahead and just do that. So if you guys could, let's pray one more time. Pray for me as I pray for you, and then we'll jump into the text. Well, Father, I thank you for another morning. Another morning to be able to open up your word. Another morning to be able to be in the book of Philippians. God, where we can see just how special, how powerful, how beautiful you are. And how your word is not just timely to certain people and in, in, in certain seasons of life, but it's also timeless. Even though we're not the church at Philippi, we're the church at Minden. God, these words are still for us today. So God, help us understand those. God, I pray for our kids and for our teachers as they disciple are just the littlest of hearts that we have in this room, in this building. God, that you would just encourage them with the same gospel in which we are going to be encouraged by and hear. So we pray all of these things to your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Hopefully you guys have found your spot to Philippians 2, but let me go ahead and just read verses 12 through 16, or actually 18, rather. It says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Church, that is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, we're thankful for God's word. Now, for those of you who are note takers, I got good news for you. I got one point today. One point, and that is work out your salvation. Now the bad news, I have five subpoints to that one main point. So work out your salvation, but the way that the Apostle Paul is going to be revealing that to us is by challenging us to know your God, to know your job, to know the pitfalls, to know the goal, to know the joy. And so we're going to just kind of walk through each of those through our time together. But if you were to look at verse 12, how does the Apostle Paul begin this section? It's really important. It's really important. Verse 12, therefore. Now we have to stop there. For those of you who have been taught rightly, right, to study the word of God, when you see a therefore, what do you have to do? You have to ask, why is the therefore therefore? Right? That's just good Bible study. That Paul uses these words intentionally because he is hinging his argument about what he's about to say on what has just been said. So it's really important to Bible study. Anytime you see it, therefore, circle it. Just so your mind is drawn to be thinking, okay, why is that there? What is, what is Paul leveraging from what he just said to what he's about to say? 
we must do the same. Now, what did Paul just say in the previous section? Well, a couple weeks ago, we looked at that. And we looked at that was the great hymn of Christ, or the Christ hymn, where Paul laid out some of the greatest scriptural truths about who Jesus is and what he has done. It's a wonderful text of scripture. Wonderful text of scripture. And that is really the first sub-point. That is to know your God. Paul is saying, therefore, know your God. Know your God. Because in order to live as a Christian, this is not super complicated, but it's really important to say, in order to live as a Christian, you must be a Christian. You must be a Christian. That in order to walk in a manner worthy that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, Jesus has to be your Lord and Savior. And how, how do we know that? What does that mean? Well, it means that you have come to an understanding that, that Jesus was not just some maybe upright religious rabbi right, in, in the first century, but rather he was God himself incarnate who came and lived the life that we could not live, died the death that we deserved on the cross by taking our sin, right, by taking on the wrath of God in which we justly deserved in believing that Jesus was there not for him but for us. That great substitute, a substitute atoning for us. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you have turned and trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now practically then, then we shouldn't be surprised when Paul calls us to live, he calls us to live in a manner worthy of what we know about God. Or we shouldn't be surprised then that if people who do not know Christ do not know the Christ of the Christ Him, live like that. Right? That shouldn't surprise us. Because we live in a world where, and you know this, any kind of Judeo or Christian morality is not only not the default mode of the human heart, but it's also just not really socially acceptable anymore. So there's not really any gain from trying to live in a life that reflects the Christian faith if you're not a Christian. Now, hear me on this, though. This doesn't mean that I don't care about the culture. This doesn't mean that I don't care about where our world is heading or what kind of social practices or moral practices are promoted in our community or in our country or in our world. I absolutely care about those things. But I know... That if you want morality to change, it comes from Jesus. It comes from following him. Morality doesn't change in morality itself, right? That's why you see these, these waves and changes of what is morally acceptable. If it's not grounded in the person and work of Christ, it's going to be fluid. It's going to keep changing. Now, Christianity does do something very unique. It does expose evil for evil. It does that. Right? We know what sin is, is because what God has revealed in his word and in his law. The reason why we have the law of God, church, is so that we know what sin is. And so we would know that we are sinners in need of a savior. Right? That's what the, the primary purpose of the law of God is. But we also know from the word of God that even if sin is ravaging the world, right? If it's changing our culture, there's still hope. There's hope for for Christians, there's hope for sinners that God is doing something about sin. There's a gospel. There's a good news. But first things first, 
do you know the God or the Christ of the Christ Him? When Paul says, therefore, can you agree what he has just said before? That's really important as we continue walking through this working out your salvation. It's incredibly important to understand who is Paul talking to? Who is he talking to? So Paul acknowledges then that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians. Even later on, that very next phrase, he says, my beloved, further cementing that he is talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians. And he says that I know you've been following Jesus. I know you've been doing that in my presence, but also in my absence. And then he makes a statement. He makes the incredible statement, which is going to be really the focus of our, our time together. He says, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation with what, though, church? Look at it with me. With fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now, a couple of things. Paul does not say work out your salvation or work for your salvation, rather, right? He's saying work out your salvation, not work for your salvation, right? So really important because people get this mixed up all the time. Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians, right? He's not talking about how to become a Christian, right? He's, he, he's done that in other places. He's talking to Christians unapologetically. And so he says, Christian, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's really important because the Bible uses this phrase of fear and trembling all over the place. And it's important for the Christian to actually know, well, how do I do that? What does it mean to, to you know, live a life that has this fear and trembling attached to it? Does that mean I'm supposed to be afraid of God, right? In a fetal position, just worried about what God says or is going to do all the time, right? Absolutely paralyzed by this, by this fear of, of punishment, no, that's not what Paul's saying at all. This fear and trembling is often in connection to this reverence of God, that you know the God in whom has saved you, that you know the weightiness of the God that saved you. You know what it cost him. You know that the God in whom died for you on the cross is the one who took his life Right, and gave it up for your sake. There's a weightiness. There's a reverence to that. Right? There's a fear to that, a holy fear, a trembling to that because you know that the most powerful creator, holy God in all the world that could have killed any single one of us for the myriad of myriad of sins that we have committed decided, no, I'm not going to kill you. I'm going to die for you. See, there's a fear and trembling that comes to knowing the God in whom you worship that almighty creator God. So then we, I must ask then, is this how you live out your Christian life? Do you live this out with a fear and trembling before your holy, righteous God? It's an important question to ask. Now, some of you might go, I don't, I want to. I really do. But How? Like, how do I actually do that? Right? How, do I, how do I live a life with fear and trembling then? Well, do you, do you do that under your own power? Is this just me telling you to, you know, pick up your spiritual bootstraps and get nice and tight and start marching? No. 
No. In fact, there's actually really good news attached to this command of working out your salvation. Look at verse 13. This is wonderful. When Paul says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So where does the change come from? How do you actually work out your salvation? Well, Paul says that's actually going to come from God. Both to will, that, that means how you think about this stuff, right? What you actually want, desire to do, that's going to come from God. And then also the ability to work it out. What you actually do, right, with your hands, right, with your feet, with your mouth. What you actually do, guess what? It also comes from God. So you're not left to your own in this. And this is where, and I want to take a moment here and explain this. This is where scripture, I think, flies in the face of two very common American idioms when it comes to the Christian faith. And let me, let me pack, unpack both of these. The first, and you might recognize this. Maybe you've said that, said these phrases. The first one is, God helps those who help themselves. Right? Ever heard that one? I've heard it. Guess what? It's not in the Bible. It's actually untrue. It's antithetical to actually some of the major tenets of the gospel. Because Christianity is all about not God helping those who help themselves, but God helping those who cannot help themselves. Right? By coming after those who are dead in their sins. You know how much dead people make themselves undead? Not very much. Okay? God comes to those who can't help themselves. So when we embark to work out the salvation, right, to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel, what are we doing? We are working out what God has already worked in, church. We're working out what God has worked in. See, God is not responding to our effort and saying, well, since you've come this far, I'm just going to get you the rest of the way. No. No, it's, it's all God from start to finish. So we're not, God's not responding to our effort. We're responding to his effort. Right? We're responding to what he has done. See, we're not, we don't be obedient to Christ and what he has called us to live for the sake of gaining something. No, we're being obedient for the sake of Christ because he's already been obedient on our behalf. Right? That was the premise of the Christ hymn, that he was obedient, obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. You cannot get those switched, church. See, God moves first, always. We simply respond to him. Now, the second idiom that is common is that of let go and let God. You ever heard this one? Now, <clears throat> certainly, when it comes to living and growing as a Christian, uh, there are, there's aspects that we need to let God be God, right? We need to release our grip saying that I'm going to Get it all done, right? I'm going to fix my problems. I'm going to do the things that I need to do to get to the place where I need to get to. Certainly, God calls us, no, 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 you're not God. You need to let go of that. You are not king of your life. You need to let go of that. But letting God be God does not mean that we let go of all responsibility, which is usually what, when people use that phrase, is what they're saying. Well, I just need to sit back and not do anything. I just need to let go and let God. I think it's also just misleading and untrue in certain areas. Because we all have the temptation to try to 
microwave our Christian faith, right? Of try to, you know, get it really hot really fast, right? Like mature in Christ really fast. We, we love to do this. And we love to do this because we do this in all kinds of areas in our life, right? We're always looking for that, that quick, you know, how do I grow? How do I get better? But I actually don't want to put in any work. I just want to say, well, God, I want to let God do this. And I'm just going to assume that I'm going to wake up tomorrow a mature Christian. That's not true. See, the Bible actually gives us many ways in which we actually do let God be God, but we respond and are responsible to what he has given us to mature in our faith called the the ordinary means of grace. Things such as confession and repentance of sin. Things such as Bible reading or prayer or gathering with God's people. Right? All of these things serve as God has actually given his people to grow in their faith. So we don't let go and let God. We certainly let God be God, but then we respond to him in the ways he's called us to respond to him. So we work out what God has worked in. Worked in. Now, many of you guys have, have dealt with this, and I know that because you guys have talked to me about it, but there's a false dichotomy that when you think about your Christian life and you think about what God is doing, that there's a false dichotomy that seems to erupt. It means, well, if God is sovereign, right, if he's all-powerful, if he does everything, if he's actually giving me the power and the mind and the action to do these things, well, what's the point? What's the point of me trying if it if all goes back to him anyways? Or the other side is we don't believe in the sovereignty of God and we believe it's actually all up to us. That maybe go back to that God helps those who help themselves. Right? These false dichotomies of it's either God is all-powerful, all-sovereign, does everything in the Christian life, including our sanctification, or, yeah, God saved me on the cross, but now it's up to me. Now it's up to me to finish the race. Those are false dichotomies. Those are enemies of each other. That God's sovereignty and human responsibility are two sides of the same coin when it comes to the Christian life. That we believe in both. We believe that God is sovereign and powerful and doing all these things, but also that he's called us to work out our salvation. Right? Do something. Respond to him. And if you don't believe me on this, believe Charles Spurgeon. Let me show you this. My favorite 19th century Baptist preacher. Look at this quote, which is really a quote of a quote of Spurgeon. Do we have that? Yeah, we do. Okay, so C. Spurgeon was once asked if he could reconcile these two truths to each other. I wouldn't try, he replied. I have never reconciled friends. Friends? Yes, friends. This is the point that we have to grasp. In the Bible, divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not enemies. They are not uneasy neighbors. They are not in an endless state of cold war with each other. They are friends. And they work together. Don't you love Spurgeon? Well, you will by by the end of your Christian walk here at Carson Valley Bible. I can assure you of that. So how does this working out actually look like then, right? How does this actually seeing that, yes, God is sovereign over my sanctification, but he's also called me to respond to what he does inside of me to work out what he's worked in. 
Well, that's where Paul goes in verse 14, is getting to the pitfalls and the goal. In verse 14, he says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, or your translation might say questioning. It says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul says, you want to start working out your salvation? You want uh, some framework to kind of get that going? Start with your mouth. And he says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. So church, how many things are we supposed to do without grumbling or disputing? All things. All things. Paul doesn't care really how it made you feel in a certain moment. He's saying, no, if if you're a Christian, one of the marks of you walking with Christ is how you look at the world around you or how you interact with people in your life. Paul even compares this attitude and actions by using a phrase, um, the crooked, crooked and twisted generation. Now, for those of you who have maybe read through the Old Testament and read through the book of Exodus in particular, you'll, you'll notice that that's an echo of God's people as they were wandering in the wilderness after they had already been freed right, from, from Egyptian slavery right, by the Passover of a lamb. Right? By, the, by the sacrificial lamb of God. And they were now being basically on their way to the promised land. And God was providing for them. But along the way, they began to grumble. They began to question God and question the leaders and whom God had put in place. And it says, you don't have to turn there, but it says in Deuteronomy 32.5 that they are a crooked and twisted generation is how he describes them. So why is Paul using that language then when he's describing Christians? Well, I believe that because Paul is referring to now the Christians today before Christ's return, that we are in a new exodus. A new exodus where we have been also redeemed out of slavery. Not slavery to a nation, not to Egypt, but out of the slavery of sin. And it was done by not the blood of a lamb, but by the blood of the lamb of God. And so now God's people are, in a sense, wandering as we're making our way to the ultimate promised land, right? The new heavens and new earth, the ultimate promised land in which we long to get to. And Paul's saying, do not make the mistake that was made before. Do not let your life, do not let what I am doing be derailed by your grumbling or questioning. He's saying, trust me. Trust me. The same thing that he was told Israel back in the day. Because truly, complaining, if we were to think about just complaining, the act of complaining, <clears throat> it's a common language of our culture, isn't it? It seems like that was true then as much as it is now. That complaining is the language of the culture. It really seems to be a mark of being of this world. But God's people are not called just to be, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. So even though that we care about what is going on, right? We care about all the things that, 
that seem to just hurt us at a soul level because we know that it's just the effect of sin. It's the effect of the consequence of sin. It's the effect of us turning our back on a holy and righteous God, right? All the things in which we find ourselves complaining, right, or questioning on. Paul is saying, don't let that mark you. Don't fall into the trap where all you care about is things in this world. In fact, even Paul would say in the book of Ephesians that the only speech that should be coming out of your mouth should be of good in the building up of others. Our speech matters, church. It matters a whole lot. And the more that I read the New Testament, the more that I read the, the writings of the Apostle Paul or some of the other apostles or, you know, or just those, those early church historians like Luke was, I am convinced, I am convinced of this, that they wanted to be known for more what they were for than what they were against. Did they speak out against things? Absolutely. But they didn't do so with grumbling or questioning. And they were more about talking or preaching about what they were for rather than what they were against. That's an important mark of what it means to work out your salvation. So it matters. And Paul even says it matters so much that it can even act as a light. That your life can be a light to a dark, sin-filled world. A beacon of light to show the way. A beacon of light to show the world, especially when anything is so dark around it. Paul's saying that your life, Christian, can actually be a light, a beacon where people can turn to and see that there's hope, but also see all the dangers that lay around it when it's hidden in the dark. I know Hazel agrees with me. She's going at it. So when it comes to grumbling or questioning, see, working out your salvation, we avoid it. We avoid it. We put it to death because we are not going to let it rule our hearts. Think what Paul's getting at. He wants your emotions, your hope, to be grounded in something else, not in the things of this world. And I know that because if you look at verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life. So you're not holding on to things of this world, but you're holding fast to what? To the promises of God, to the character of God, to the attributes of God, that no matter what life brings down the pipeline, right? no matter how much suffering or pain or just seemingly random events that have been affecting your life, affecting your relationships, your foundation is not shaken anymore because your foundation is secured. And so you're holding fast to the words of life. And by doing so, the light that you possess will shine all the brighter, the darker this world gets. Which is a major aspect then to working out your salvation. That you work out your salvation not just for you. That's because God has commanded you to do it, but also for the benefit of others. Right? There's an otherness to this. Right? Paul is telling the church, not just a single Christian, not just me, not just you know, one of you, saying, you, church, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. So to draw those who are still in darkness into 
what is the light? And not just your light, but the light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus would say this himself in Matthew 5, 16, when he's telling these early disciples of what it's going to look like for them to live out what God has been doing inside of them. He says this in Matthew 5, 16, just listen. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So why do we work out our salvation? Not just for ourselves, but also for others. To let that light shine in a dark world. So it's for the sake of others. Listen, it's easy to be on the bandwagon of grumbling and questioning and complaining. It is easy to jump on there. I have done it many times. But God is calling me to not be caught up in the things of this world, to be in it but to not have my hope in it, to not have my salvation in it. My salvation is in the Lord, and so my hope is in him. And so I work out what God has worked in, and I hold fast to the word of God. I hold fast to Jesus. I hold fast to his promises. Because I want, at the end of the day, church, I want my life to be pointing to him. Right? I want my life, my salvation, which God has given me, not to just dwell in here and then nobody can see it. No, I want it to explode out and saying, no, I want you to see the splendor of him. I want you to see the splendor of the king. I want you to see the splendor of the grace that's been given to me. I want you to see the splendor of the joy that I now have because of him, which is really the last point that we can know the joy that comes from it all, that you can know the joy from actually working out your salvation. Paul would continue at the end of verse 16 and end of verse 17, if you turn there. Paul says, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now, what is Paul saying, right? We're not used to this language. We don't, we don't have offerings or drink offerings in our culture. So what is, what is Paul talking about? Well, in the Old Testament, and also really in the first century pagan world, there was many types of sacrifices. There's many types of offerings. And in particular, in the Old Testament, sometimes there would be something known as the drink offering. When a, basically a burnt offering would have taken place before the Lord. Right? Something sacrificed using an animal for the Lord. And it was, it was sitting on this, this, this altar, burning, because it had just been burnt as a sacrifice. Usually a priest then would take a glass or a cup of wine, and he would pour that over this burnt offering. And what that would do, this, and it would be known as a drink offering, that, that sizzling of the wine hitting this burnt flesh, it would sizzle. And this aroma of the wine and the fragrances of it would basically fill the air of the inner room. It's okay, Hazel. I know. It, and it would fill the room of the air, basically saying that God was pleased with this. Right? You see language of, of basically our works being a, a pleasing aroma to Christ later on in books like the book of Ephesians. And so what Paul, I believe, is saying in this moment is he's telling the church that, listen, all of our lives, we live as an offering to God. Jesus told us that if we were to lose our life, we would gain it. 
Right? So there's an aspect that we're dying to self right, in giving that to Christ who has given us new life in him. And Paul's saying, even if then, if I'm poured out on your life, which he might be talking about, like his upending uh, crucifixion that would happen, or he wasn't crucified, but as he was killed for his faith. He might be talking about, we actually don't really know. But basically what he's saying is, even if I am poured out, even if I give everything, but it's all for the sake of pointing to what you have done and what you will do for the Lord, I'm happy about it. I am joyful about it. I am glad about it because it means that the life that I lived is not in vain. It wasn't meaningless. That all the times I taught you about Christ and then you were able to actually live for him, that's a sweet, pleasing aroma for me. So he's saying that no matter what happens, your salvation and you working out your salvation will lead to joy both to him and also for the church. That living for Christ, right, living out what God has worked in will not be a life that's wasted, will not be a life in vain. And it could be the most joyful life that you could ever have by doing so. Do you, do you realize the, the, the grandeur of that statement? See, God could have simply said, hey, you have to obey and you have to obey begrudgingly. That I have saved you, I'm calling you these things, and guess what? You're going to now live the rest of your life with absolutely no joy. But I'm God and I saved you and I can do what I want. He could have done that. He absolutely could have done that. But that's not what he has done. He actually says, no, I'm not only going to save you I'm not only going to give you new life, but I'm also going to let you live the life in obedience to me, and it's going to lead to the most joy you could ever have. It's not like there's people out there who have abandoned God, and they're the ones who have a good life. And Paul's saying, actually, the best life is one in submission to me. See, God doesn't hold anything back from his kids. Everything good he gives to his kids. I think that's really good news, church. I think it's a really good news for us that we don't have to say, man, I, it would have been so much better if I just didn't know Christ. But we can look at the words of Paul here where he says that we can be glad and rejoice with him as we work out our salvation. So church, as we just end our time, end our time, one is I pray that every single one of us would know the Christ of the Christ hymn. That if we want to work out our salvation, we have to work out what God has already worked in. So if you don't feel like you can work out your salvation because you don't know it's there, well then go back to Christ. Go back to what he has done. But I know for many of you, many of you have confessed Christ, have confessed him as your Lord and Savior. And I now can commend you saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because you know what's going to happen when you do that? Joy. A ton of joy is coming. Both now and in the days ahead. What a gift that is. All right, church, let's go ahead and stop there and let's pray. <clears throat> well, Father, once again, I am, I'm blown away. I'm blown away by the grace in which you have bestowed on us. I'm blown away by the calling in which you have for my life and for many in this room this morning. And Father, as we... 
is we want to do this and we desire to do this because you've commanded us to do this, to work out our salvation. God, may we do it knowing that you are the God behind it, that you are the God that's working into us what we desire to work out. God, I know that my own heart is quick to forget that. But as we just sung earlier, I ask that you would tune our hearts to sing that grace. And even though that I'm prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love, God, I know that you are faithful in keeping me, in allowing me to see that I can hold fast to your word. I can hold fast the words of life. And God, may that be true of every single one of us this morning as as we end our time in your word. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.